0: Welcome back to the Women of Marvel Podcast, where we assemble to chat all things Marvel and more. It's Judy. Hey, it's Sana. Oh my God. Guess what last week was? What was it? (laughs) It was our fifth anniversary of the Women of Marvel Podcast. In 2014, on June 20th, we released our first episode, and now we are five years later, uh, 200 plus episodes. Along with our celebration of the fifth anniversary of the podcast, we are also being part of the anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. It is the 50th anniversary of basically the beginning of the gay rights movement which kicked off in 1969 at the Stonewall Inn, which is a bar in Greenwich Village um, in Manhattan. And as part of that, New York City is really bringing its A-game because it is World Pride here in New York. And as part of that, we are celebrating all month, including this upcoming weekend. There is so much to do throughout the city, all leading up to the Pride March on Sunday that starts at noon um, and will march through the village and uh, by Stonewall Inn. But as part of that, uh, Pride and just celebrating all of this we are very excited to bring three amazing creators to talk
1: LGBTQ rights so yes we've got Teenie Howard Vida Ayala and Leah Williams Uh, they are all super talented lovely writers who started working at Marvel um, maybe about one to two years ago all relatively recent but are definitely the next generation of Marvel writers and it was just so fantastic to talk to them it definitely got a little bit emotional so for those of you um, who Feel like they've gone through similar experiences. Just a little bit of a warning that it might bring up some stuff, but hopefully it's going to be cathartic and therapeutic for, for all of you, as I think it was for, for us as well um, in the room. So let's go listen in to our conversation.
0: Hey guys, uh, I'm in sitting in a room full of some epic people. First, we have Teeny, Hi. And we have Leah. Hi. And we have Vita. Hey, hey. Welcome. Happy Pride. Happy, Ooh, happy Pride! Pride. Woo! Happy yes. rainbows. And super rainbow, I want to say. So, you know, as we started in the intro, uh, this year is a big year for the LGBTQ movement and sort of looking back at Stonewall and the 50th anniversary plus World Pride here in New York City. But we wanted to bring together three queer creators as part of the Marvel team to sort of talk a little bit about who they are and how they got here and sort of why it matters that there is representation within within our community. Um, so sort of kick kick it off, uh, I want to have each one of you sort of introduce yourselves and also your pronouns, because that's important, and talk a little bit about what you're working on right now, what you worked on
2: for fans to go read. Let's start off with Leah. Hi, uh, my name is Leah Williams. My pronouns are she, her. I identify as bisexual, um, pansexual, queer, uncomfortable with those terms. And I'm working on Gwenpool Strikes Back. I just finished up. Age of X-Men Extremists, and I did What If Magic and X-Men Black Emma Frost as well.
3: Hi, I'm Teeny Howard. I uh, I use she-her pronouns. I identify as a bisexual woman. Um, And uh, yeah, I'm working on uh, Thanos right now for Marvel, as well as uh, Age of Conan Belit, and a Death's Head book that's going to be coming out. And I just announced a new book called Strike Force, which features some of my favorite queer characters, too, so that's exciting.
4: I'm Vita Ayala, and uh, I'm non-binary. My pronouns are they, them. They're neutral, and I identify as queer because that is the easiest way for me to tell you who I am in less than 280 characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now, I just finished up uh, Age of X-Men Prisoner X and Acts of Evil Ghost Spider, which was super fun. Yeah.
0: Well, welcome, guys. We're really excited that you're all here. We sort of brought... A a wide selection uh, of the country, sort of mostly on the East Coast,
2: (laughs) mostly East Coasters.
0: We actually had the opportunity to sit down last night and sort of kick off this conversation. We talked a little bit about, like, what was the moment you guys thought that you could be a writer? Because I think that's really important for many people at home. um, You know, when you think of comics, you you, you think of who you see on panels. You think of who you see in the media. And a lot of times that's not necessarily the people in this room. So I'm sort of wondering, like, what was the moment that you guys thought that, hey, I can work in comics? Like, what's your breaking in story?
2: I never knew that I could write comics the way that it worked for me before. I was pursuing writing because I am a hungry person and a devourer of knowledge. And I was writing, like, nonfiction articles. And I wrote a YA book. And... I did these things out of passion. The stuff that I write is driven by passion. And I got an email from Marvel editor Chris Robinson um, saying that he had read my uh, YA book and was just wondering, you know, if I had any interest in writing comics. And of course, at the time that I was receiving this email, I was sitting in front of like a 15-foot-long vinyl X-Men poster dominating my living room. <laughs> so I had to take 12 hours to calm down before replying because it would have just been, like, key smashing and emojis and just like, ah, yeah!
4: I feel like that's acceptable, though. <laughs> like,
2: I <it's>, With Chris. <laughs> but I didn't know that at the time, you know? Like, I, I always got to be careful. Um, and then I replied, like, yes, absolutely. Um, not that I had you know, considered writing comics, but just, of course, I I would be honored to. Marvel is one of those properties that has, like, kept me alive during the darkest points in my life. So the same sort of, like, passion that was driving what I chose to write about before is what's driving me writing comics now.
1: Sorry, fun fact. (laughs) I got Chris Robinson his job. Yes, and he's the best. And every year, he will give me a small bouquet of roses saying, thank you for
2: the gig. Oh, yeah, he's the nicest person ever. So he Don't uh, let him fool you. That's, been, <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> what I do. I, every it's been two years now. And every every on the, the anniversary of getting that email, I send him a screenshot of that email. <laughs> I text it to him. Like, you guys are hey! both adorable. <laughs> do you send
0: them with emojis this time? Oh, yeah. lots.
2: <laughs> yeah. Just incomprehensible strands of emojis. Tini, what about you?
0: So uh
3: I like what Leah said, being a, a hungry person, I identify with that a lot. I'm um left to my own devices. Like if I'm in my my mental peace, I, I love to just disassociate and think of stories. So being able to disassociate professionally is great for me and it keeps my therapist in business. It's interesting because one of the things that when I was working for it was a I was working in a government contracting position and I'm a I'm a generally peaceful person, so I didn't like some of the um Some of what I felt like were aggressive parts of my job. And I started reading Matt Fraction's Invincible Iron Man run and seeing Tony Stark be like, I can't stand seeing the things I love used for things that I hate got me. Like it got me good. And I was like, if this guy is me and if this is what superhero comics are, I can do this. And I was like, okay, I, I'm going to do it. So I started turning in, uh, you know, finding anthologies and submitting ideas and getting rejected. And uh, so my first book was published by Top Cow. They had a contest called a Talent Hunt, and you got to send in a script. Uh, and they said they would pick and publish four of them, and they would pick and publish four artists. Um, and they had said that one of the winners this year in the writer category and the artist category were going to be women. And that was really important to me because it made me feel like, okay, I, I not only have a place here, someone's making... A spot, but even in the weird way, I was discounting myself, right? Like, I don't think I would have thought I could have earned one of those spots if I wasn't. But at the same time, I did, and I'm still here. So, yeah, for me, it was literally a case of someone. And in a lot of our cases, it's a case of someone holding the door open for you, whether they know it's for you or not. Sometimes someone holds the door, you know, for representation for someone that has a perspective and a story in an underserved group. And and yeah, I think I, I think that's a really part of a lot of our stories is that someone held the door open um and said, you know, we all have to fight our way in, but here's a way you can at least start fighting from the same level. Yeah. Right have now. a chance. Yeah. yeah. I mean
0: I think one of the great points of your story, Teeny, and we talked a little bit at the e V two panel earlier this year, is that You know, all of us were fans, right, before we started writing comics, some way or another. But you were a cosplayer, and for so long, cosplay was sort of considered this thing you put in the closet, Mm -hmm. ironically enough. And you only came out, and now it's very much more, like, everyone talks about it. And, of course, I was like, I got to show Teenie's photos at the panel. But I think it's important because it shows to everyone out there that even if you are a fan in whatever spectrum, you can, too, also eventually work here. Well, yeah, and I I
3: think that's extra important because I know when I started thinking about getting into comics, I would read a lot of stories of writers and artists that I loved and they would talk about, oh, when I was a kid, I used to draw Spider-Man on everything or, oh, you know, I used to write stories about Captain America when I was a kid. And I felt like for a long time, I didn't have those stories. And a lot as, you know, as women and um, as queer people, it's like a lot of what – are ways of connecting with fandoms, sometimes things like fan fiction, fan art, cosplay, those are often so discounted and seen as like things to be ashamed
2: of. But they're far more accessible for us because they don't have the same sort of like gateway for entry.
4: Well, and they're, they are, you know, it's a great way to hone your craft no matter sure, what, what you're doing, whether it be, you know, deep diving into the character so you can make the costume and embody them or write fan fiction. I mean, fan fiction. Com- people that comment on that are
2: way harsher than any I other right. saying, oh my God, right. yes. Yes. <laughs> fan fiction was my gladiator arena yeah. Yeah. because the people who read fan fiction are the people who know that character backwards and forwards right. and they will let you know when you mess up yeah exactly and a lot of times like it's constructive criticism too yeah. it's something you can use yeah I-, I like that that
1: tini you ended on this idea of like you know someone has to hold the door open for you and You know, we have a lot of conversations about like the fact that we are creating sort of these niche spaces for people of a particular quote unquote category. And like I want to be able to kind of pull away from that sort of negative idea because we have to like we have to be able to create those spaces because at the end of the day, that's how we're going to get these distinct stories with distinct POVs. So Vida, do you have like a similar story where, you know, you getting into comics for the first time, did you have someone who helped sort of open that door for you
4: yeah definitely uh so i worked at a comic book shop in new york city forbidden planet um and during one of my many 10 years there uh, i ended up working with matthew rosenberg who is now exclusive to marvel but back then he was another book jockey like me and he would watch me come in every day like an hour or two early and go to the basement and write in my notebook or on my laptop and he's like you know are you going to show anybody this? Like, what are you going to do with this stuff? And I was like, oh, no, 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 Certainly not. No, absolutely not. Because I had this idea in my head that, like, one day my notebook would fall out of my bag and, like, some famous person would pick it up and, and give me a book deal because that's 100% how it happens. Um, <laughs> But he came up to me one day and he was like, cool, so you're going to pitch comics. And I was like, no, bro, I don't think so. And he was like, oh, it's too late. I already made you an appointment to talk to somebody that I know. So that's just going to happen. And so he he didn't force me to do it, but he definitely kind of gave me a push and went, listen, I have read your stuff and I think you're really good. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to be real with you. I think you're good enough to to get a book at this place. And what I also think is that people are going to try to tokenize you and you should use that to your advantage, you know. And I was like, hey, man, I don't know if you knew. I've been brown and queer and designated female at birth my whole life. I've been doing that. Like, I'm all about the hustle. That's how it works. People, you know, open the door a little bit and then you blast it off the hinges and you just roll through with your crew. Um, And he was like, all right, cool. I don't have to worry about you. You know what I mean? Like, And he was always there in case I needed something, but, you know his belief in my ability to handle myself really made me think, oh, this thing that I've always wanted since I learned how to read and write, which was later than most of my my peers. I didn't learn how to read and write until I was about 10 years old. Um, You know, that person who struggled so hard and then started doing this thing that they loved, they could also get paid for it or at least get published. Um, And so, yeah, his belief in me really made me believe in myself because I I don't particularly like myself, but I like him and he believed in me. So,
1: Well, I mean, we all, I mean, these are all incredible sort of getting into comic stories. I feel like we all have different particular, and we're going to say Marvel specific because we're at Marvel, even though I know there's probably other stories that have impacted you guys um, and your own personal stories, but also the way that you write creatively. But I'm curious, are there specific Marvel stories that have impacted the way that you perceive identity, perceive your own identity, others' identities? I don't actually talk about this a lot, which is weird. Uh, I talk about the characters
4: that kind of drew me to comics, but not uh, as often the characters that kind of made me think about myself. So this is going to be fun. Mystique was really important to me. Shapeshifters in general, but especially Mystique was really important to me because here's this character who's designated female at birth. But once You know, she hit her mutant awakening or whatever. That meant nothing. You know, she could be anyone or anything almost. Well, within reason, but she's done a lot of really wacky stuff. Um, And to me, that was really something that at the back of my mind, whenever I would read a Mystique thing and I would literally read or watch anything with Mystique in it. um, I was like, none of the boundaries that people put on themselves and other people apply to Mystique and it's okay no one questions it because she's a shapeshifter. So she can con- just kind of, like, do whatever she wants to do in terms of her own body and in terms of, like, who she's connecting with. And people are like, I don't know, ma'am." And she's a villain, <laughs> which is always fun. <laughs> but, I, you know, she was allowed to do a lot of things that n- other characters wouldn't have been at the time, which I found really, really interesting. Um, and also, you know, Destiny. <laughs> uh, so seeing their kind of interaction. But just really— Mystique as a concept, to me, was really, really important. And I'm not going to say it was the thing that made me go, oh, snap. Um, But looking back on my fascination with this character, it all makes sense. Um, And for me, it was also really interesting because she's one of the only characters— that I really identify with strongly that isn't brown. I mean, she's blue, but like, you know, what I mean, <laughs> like, to me, what got me into comics was seeing brown characters on the cover or people that I misidentified as brown on the cover. Um, but with her, you know, I immediately
0: felt this connection and it, it persists to this day. I, I, I want to say that's actually incredibly refreshing because I had a moment at a panel years ago to interview. Remember when someone asked me what my favorite character And I was in Mystique. And I was like, because she could be whoever she wants to be. And I was like, had this like epiphany on the panel, and everyone was just staring at me. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go sit in my chair. <laughs> but that's, it's so accurate. It's so true to have a character that is, who would have thought when they created her so many years ago that that would be this sort of gateway for someone to be like, what is it like to be born a woman? But not classify yourself as a woman, and she, she rolls with it
4: too, and and that's one of the things that's really important to me whenever I see anything with her in it like no one's ever like, "Why did you like take the form of this guy or this whatever?" No one ever questions it. why would you? why would you because for her, she shaped shifters in general, but especially mystique, I think her status as a villain being important there. Uh, Gives her this extra space to just kind of do whatever she wants. Like <laughs> she can just be. I remember
2: anything. Chris Claremont wanted to make her Nightcrawler's father instead so of good. his mother, um, because Mystique, like canonically, identifies as intersex and you know what we call non-binary.
3: It would have been so good. I also love that you brought up a villain because that's something I laugh about a lot. Like when people bring up the very valid, like academic discourse about queer coding and villainy, but at the same time, I'm like,
2: I love <laughs> it. I identify <laughs> with villain.
3: <Yeah. laughs> very,
2: very like, it's
3: all we got. But what, especially like, people like Mystique, right? Because or Magneto is or a Magneto, character who gets queer coded a lot by a lot of fans, because, because and like,
4: right? And it's that character is like, real, but also like because. I feel like we identify with villains, too, because of their struggle. Like, very rarely nowadays you have a villain that's just like cookie cutter, like, I twist my mustache and put a girl on some tracks. It's like, oh, oh yeah. you were you were traumatized and abused, and you were like, nah, I'ma I'm a reflect and that back. And it's like, oh, I, I would never, but I feel that really. Mm-hmm. We,
2: we find something <laughs> infinitely yeah. recognizable in these characters that are queer-coded and vilified, specifically, yeah. and right. are misunderstood by everyone around them. Because it's the same sort of like even if we don't consciously know why we're drawn towards these characters, it's it's kind of um an experience that is recognizable.
4: And for a long time too, with with villain characters just in general, right? Not not specific to Marvel, they also had a lot of room, not just to be queer, but just to do things that were a little more nuanced and complicated than the cookie cutter hero characters, because you had all this pressure for the hero to kind of stay in one lane because that's the moral character and the moral center of the story. Whereas with the villain, it's like, no, you could have moments of softness and moments of doubt and all of these things. And and then you're still the villain. It's like. I would rather see that story, you know, than the one where the person is like, hi, I'm I'm a good person and that's it. And I'm going to punch the bad guy. And you're like, that was actually something really
3: refreshing about the Captain America annual I got to write was like, because of the context of it, I got to make, you know, Cap a freedom fighter. Yeah. Like again, like I got to, I got to make him like actively save like women and like queer characters and like to get to have like, you know, in that, in that issue one thing is that like the character who's been rescued who is gay is like I don't want to go back to Germany because it's 1945 and he is on record as being a homosexual and there are what are called pink lists and they were used in Europe for decades to keep people from getting housing jobs to put people in jail um you know after the Nazi government was you know taken out of power like it was still dangerous to be homosexual in Germany and to have that character, like, you know, spit that back at Cap and expect the hero to say, oh, well, I can't do anything outside the rules. Sorry. It was really fun and refreshing and important as a queer writer to be able to have him say, like, like no, like, like you're, you're a hero and I'm going to save you and I don't – we'll get you wherever you have to be to be safe. And, like – but it was a really good experience to get to write, like, you know, the hero of heroes, like Captain Freaking America, like – Take the hand of a gay man and say your life is worth saving.
2: And you were the first woman to write Captain America in like 40 years. Yeah, as far I mean, unless some. Oh, yes, that's, that's, that's it. It. Like, As far <laughs> as like I mean, yeah. there was
3: probably some badass in a bullpen somewhere writing his lines long ago, but
1: <laughs> I think I'm the first one with her name on the cover. <laughs> so, how do you guys write your own experiences? How do you create a balance between like authentic representation but then also wanting to write the fantastic also wanting to just write a story for the sake of the arts right um, I'm sure you probably have your own internal pressures I'm sure there's also a bit of society expecting you to write certain things too um, so how do you guys how do you guys balance that and what's your approach uh,
4: I think I think the f- first thing that I take into account is that I'm being asked to write a thing if it's worked for, for hire because of my perspective. So whatever—I I can't take myself out of it. I can't divorce myself from it. So I might as well bring my whole self to it. And I think that for me, especially with teen books like Prisoner X— um, Almost all of the characters, there are some parts of myself that I see in them anyway. That's what drew me to them. The first time that I ever picked up a comic, I was at a Korean bodega in my neighborhood and there was a little spinner rack and there were two comics that caught my eye immediately. And one of them was a Wonder Woman comic and the other one was an X-Men comic and Bishop and Storm were on the cover. And I was like, I don't know. I was like seven. I was like, I don't know anything about this. But I see myself in those characters. I physically see myself. And I was like, okay. And then getting into comics later, I was like, I do identify with a lot of these people's struggles. And so, like, you know, I'm not a black man. (laughs) Don't know if you know. (laughs) But there are certain—you know, I I happen to have siblings who are black men. But also there are certain things that you can empathize with no matter who you're writing. And so in order to do it authentically, period, you have to connect with those things. It doesn't matter— who the person is in terms of their demographics. You as a human being need to empathize with the character. Um, I think to me that's the most important part. And then like people's expectations, like I can only be me and I can only do what I do. And if it's not for you, I don't blame you. That's okay. That was really what it took. Like I had to make peace with the fact that like not everyone was about my perspective. That's cool, but I'm going to write what I'm going to write and that's it.
2: Yeah. Listener X is amazing, by the yeah, way. Mm-hmm. I, I reread the first four issues like last week and had to just go take a walk, like, just get up and walk around. It's so good.
4: It's mostly Herman. <laughs> He's so good. Ooh. I
3: reread your Marvel Knights issue the other day. I reread yours as well. <laughs> we love each other. Oh God, we I love
4: each other's work I like we group hug, <laughs> here, hug. I reread their stuff all the time um, because I think one of them. Uh, writing comics is lonely. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like a way to like hang out with each other. Yeah, or to, like, see each other on the shelf and yeah. you read your book. Yeah, like, and it's like I love you guys anyway. And to be able like to see the parts of yourself that you put into the work, like an extremist, which I literally just reread two days ago. Um, You know that that gives me a warm fuzzy feeling.
2: <laughs> yeah, I. I, I totally know what you're talking about. And and also, too, with what you're saying about what parts of you go into a comic, what parts of your personal experience, because it's, it's never something that people think it is. Um, because the way that I approach it is knowing, first and foremost, no matter what I do, I'm going to get accused of, like, yeah. Mary suing myself because, you know, I'm a woman and that's what happens. So I have to, like— you know make decisions based on that but even still it's it doesn't feel like a difficult line for me to navigate up until the fourth issue of extremist because like if i want to add authenticity to a character i don't mind drawing from my own experience and there's this one moment in extremist 2 i did a blob Psylocke romance and um there's this one moment in Extremist 2 where Fred Dukes is confessing his feelings to Betsy and i used language that i know as a queer experience it's like When you develop feelings for your friend of the same sex and you never say anything because you don't want to, like, tank the friendship, so you just live with the pain. Like, you dig yourself a pain rut and you stay entrenched in it because it's more familiar and comfortable than leaving it. That is, like, a queer experience. So I put that in the book. Blob saying it to Betsy because they're in this world where love has been outlawed, and he's, like, begging her not to brainwash him because she offered out of professional courtesy. Like, I can get rid of that for you. Like, I see it. Like, just let me take care of it. And he's like, no, please. It is literally the only thing keeping me alive right now. <laughs> and uh, the reaction to that, like— I I have no regrets putting a personal experience in this book just because it was the appropriate venue. Um, but what I thought was a queer experience is actually very much shared. A lot of people are hurting all at once. And with each issue of extremists that came out, I learned how many more people are in pain because they would reach out to me about it online. So like, The fourth issue is the North Star-centric POV, and you know, this is a world, it erases love, it erases sexuality as well. So, like, the fourth issue of Extremist and trying to write about the consequences of queer erasure and how assimilation is not equality, so... Writing about the feeling of like being lost and closeted and not knowing what you are, just knowing there's something wrong with you, feeling monstrous and feeling alone. Like, I hated it. I hated every moment of writing that issue. Like, I can't even lie about that. But it that. was so
4: powerful. Yeah. Like, that, that, the moment that you spoke about in the second issue actually brought me to tears. I'm not gonna lie. But that issue, the fourth issue felt, it got chills. I got chills turning every page. And I was like, "Oh, is someone watching me? It it was too
2: raw and it was too real. It it still feels like an open wound to me. I'm glad the series is over. I'm I'm glad (laughs) that I did it, but also glad it's over. So
1: do you feel like writing your experiences can be therapeutic or just too painful to do? Because everyone is different.
2: Sometimes, like, it... Okay, so Blob confessing his feelings for Betsy—that was therapeutic. Yeah. But writing about the consequences of queer erasure and writing about like being closeted and not knowing what you are, like that was that was more traumatic. (laughs) There's certain
4: things I wouldn't, I cannot write. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And and when I say like I don't want to do that again, it's because I don't want to stay entrenched in these feelings that like Mm. made me try to kill myself when I was a kid, you know, and I. I was doing it because, in my mind, this is the way we make this world count. Where you say love has been outlawed, let me show you what that looks like for queer individuals. Because I, I don't think I could have told any other story, and I would make the same decisions again, like for better or for worse. But um, it, it, it was the authentic narrative that I wanted to move towards.
1: Well, I think that's the most powerful thing and I'm sorry it was so hard for you I feel like you but at the same time you probably put out a story that's going to live on for so long it became
2: worth it afterwards yeah
1: yeah. and I think that's the focus is the impact it's going to have to people who understand who don't understand like that's the message that you want to put out there
0: I mean especially for a lot of young people nowadays there's much more LGBTQ and queer people within media but like growing up each one of us was confused because we don't know what we are. Yeah, yeah, and I didn't. I didn't. I went to an all-girls Catholic high school, but I didn't know anyone who really was queer. So it was like this weird world where I wasn't sure who I was. And it wasn't until I moved to New York and actually, interestingly enough, started working at Marvel and then uh, and discovering who I was. But it's stories like that where you have these characters that you know, like I grew up on Zena, um, <laughs> and you know, obviously as that relationship built with Gabriella, like that that is an experience. But like I didn't know how to. It's these, it's these characters and these stories that you experience, and you put them together, and you go, "Oh wait, what I'm feeling is okay," and I think that that's important. I mean, I think that all three of you guys do is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes I, I think for many people, it's scared to sort of come out. I'm using quotations, I think too, the discussions that we're having right now
4: are also very important uh, for younger people to be able to kind of understand who they are because so like I grew up in New York City I grew up in the Lower East Side my godfather is gay Uh, my mother well my parents were all into the arts and stuff (laughs) so there's a lot of queer people in our life but like it did not it still did not occur to me for way too long that this was these feelings were actually connected to the same thing right because it wasn't it wasn't that I was taught shame by my parents at all but there was no context for it. These people just were what they were. Mm-hmm. It seemed like they never doubted themselves and that's it. And these conversations that we have, peop- or it's not even just young people, older people too. Anyone who is having these feelings, you're having this conversation internally and hearing it on the outside really drives it home. I mean, when I when I uh, kind of went through the secondary journey of figuring out that I was non-binary, that's, that's really what made it click. I was on Tumblr, which was a hellscape, and it's yeah. now, worse now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> oh, it's we so laugh, terrible. but it's not good uh, laugh. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, like,
4: there was really something to that. There was a lot of really buck-wild discourse about gender and all this stuff and people policing each other, and it was really terrible in that respect. But there was a lot of really kind of... Raw and honest questioning going on and putting to words these feelings that had persisted forever. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm 30. (laughs) Like, i always known that this wasn't right. Something wasn't right. But now I have a word for it. And I have other people having this conversation in public because I don't like to be that messy in public. (laughs) And, like— Now it all makes sense. Everything clicks into place. And I can't even imagine. what. That's
2: exactly the same for me. It was Tumblr and it was just like watching these teens talk about being bi. And I was like, oh, that's bi? I thought I was straight, but like kind of slutty. Like I, (laughs) my whole life. Because I I grew up in, in Mississippi and like, Oxford, Mississippi, which is not the smallest town, but there's no comic shop. There's an art scene. There's no queer scene in Mississippi. You got to drive, like, 45 minutes east for that. Um, so all I knew was that I, I did stuff with girls in secret. And it and, and we, yeah, I, I just thought I was straight. But it, it wasn't until, like, Tumblr and being exposed to these kinds of conversations right. and just learning, like, oh, that's okay. I'm normal. Oh, everything makes sense now. Okay. Yeah, it falls into place. It does. Something clicks into place and then it just changes the way you move forward for the rest of your life.
3: Yeah, I was I was lucky enough to I, I realized I was queer pretty like like pretty young, like fifteen or sixteen. And this was in like two thousand, like I'm old. Um, so <laughs> this was like a <laughs> this was like, well, I mean, you know, for the nineteen year olds listening. <laughs> um, this was in the year two thousand when I was You know, 16 years old or 15 years old. And uh, I figured that out pretty early on. And I was lucky in that partially because my mental health was really bad as a teenager. I spent time in and out of hospitals. Um, And partially because of that, I was surrounded with a lot of people who were really good at encouraging me to uh, introspect Um, and because, you know, I went to a high school that had, you know, we had our little gay-straight alliance back when they were called that at schools, and, um, we had things like that where, you know, I was a part of, and I was able to, and I remember being, like, 17 and, like, a senior, and someone, I remember being the president of the gay-straight alliance at my high school, and someone said, well, which are you, gay or straight? And I said, baby, I'm the
4: alliance. (laughs) (laughs) Um tattoo that
3: (laughs) (laughs) but like you know that for me like it's still even though it was an identity that I was aware of I wasn't comfortable with it for years I mean I felt the same way about it that I feel about the fact that I you know used to write fan fiction and cosplay it was like this thing that is specifically because of so much of the cultural dialogue around bisexuality I just believed that it was like if I identify as this then I'm unprofessional in some way um, and now it's amazing that I feel like I'm, you know, I'm here now with you fine people, to quote Titanic. <laughs> um, but like, you know, I'm I'm here representing myself professionally, not in spite of my sexuality, but because of it. And, like, to, you know, go back to the writing stuff when we're putting that in, you know, it's like I had a friend recently kind of joke at me. It was like, you know, do you feel like it would be easier if Thanos was a bisexual woman? And I was like, you know, honestly, for the week, a month I write that script, he is. <laughs> like, he isn't, obviously. That's not what's going on in the book. But, like, for a week, a month, he's me. It's yeah. a lens that informs yeah. what
2: you're doing. Yeah. yeah.
3: And it, there, yeah. there are things about – and, and like, no, it's not about – there nothing – Obviously related to my experience as a bisexual woman makes its way into Thanos' personality. Nothing obvious because that's not why I write. I don't write to tell obvious stories. I write to work through complicated ones. But there are absolutely aspects of feeling like like you have to do everything yourself which is something as a woman that I think a lot of us who, you know, are, have been designated female feel that way. Um, or, you know, as a queer person, feeling like the things that you live for that get you out of bed in the morning are secrets that if people knew about you, they would use against you and weaken you. Like, those are experiences that are deeply tied to my life as a queer person. But, like, you know, I still bring that to Thanos, even though he's not working through his sexuality or gender, he knows what he is. It's, um, the, it's oh, just I'm an sweet.
2: avenue <laughs> of honesty. Yeah. It's it's an avenue of honesty, like something you that gives it depth. And and I do think that like
3: there are a lot of really interesting things that those of us who have different experiences with, you know, what is often called toxic masculinity, like when as a as a queer woman, when I take on a character like that who is Someone who could, yeah, it's you know he's not a good guy. He's a he's a big mean villain dude with a lot of a lot of pain that he can't handle, and a you know he you know can't get the girl he wants, so he beats everyone up. Uh, that that's not who I wanted to write a book about. You know, I wanted to write a book about the person I see when I see people like that, which are you know people in pain
2: while we're on the subject of what we, you know, put into our books, the short dialogue that Vita and I just had about, you know, something clicking into place and when you, like, walk around carrying a feeling of wrongness, that is literally the first page of the last issue of Extremist, which hasn't come out yet. So, yeah, like, I'm hearing you say that made me super emotional <laughs> because it's coming from— Jubilee, who has she's the first one who woke up in this world and got her memories back. And she has a son. So she wakes up and she realizes that you know, like she's been brainwashed and she doesn't know where her son is, and she just goes nuclear, like like literally nuclear.
4: I was waiting on that, so reading it. I was like, when is Jubilee gonna
2: realize that yeah, like i kid I, is I wanted not to around. set her up as like <laughs> the grand finale, you know, bombastic end part. Um so the, the first page, like, the first line is, do you ever walk around carrying a feeling of wrongness? Like, you don't know what it is or where it comes from. You just know there's something wrong with you. And, like, we... There are panels over Bobby and Northstar and Richter, who are all gay men, and she's describing this experience, like, until one day something clicks into place and then it changes the way you move forward. Like, that's... it. Yeah, it made me, like, a little teary when you actually said that in real life because it is something that I recognize as a queer experience, but it's it's not given that context here necessarily, just the juxtaposition of the elements.
1: Well, what I think is really interesting, and, and this is what tends to happen when you're a creator, you know, of a, whatever di- diverse background, to use the word diverse, which, you know, I hate using the word diverse. <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> but, um is the fact that they people tend to kind of categorize you into those the the three elements that they know about you those three descriptions that they know about you but i think what is interesting is like those three elements have informed different aspects of your life that have made it so much more complex and interesting. And I feel like that makes you so much more of a layered person a more thoughtful, introspective person that you inject into your story. So you're not just injecting your bisexuality or anything. You're, inje- I mean, you are, but it is so much more than just that. And because of that, your stories automatically become so universal, right? And, and to speak about
4: that too, uh, to me, when you describe it in that way, I'm like, oh, like, let's say it's only three things. Well, those are colors, right? And mm-hmm. different levels of these colors are going to produce something different every I call
2: time. it lensing. I don't I, know I, how I like else to refer to it. But, like, I, I know that a queer reader has a different experience with extremists than— um, a straight reader would at first because there's, they see these Easter eggs, like breadcrumb trail in the first issue. They can see what's coming immediately.
4: I'm gonna I'm just say right now, I'm a big up to queer people in general, but I feel like we are trained from an early age, even if we don't know that we're queer, to look for. Subtext, Yes. In ways that, like, people that feel very comfortable with themselves do not. And so, like, of course they do. And it's not just that, like, I'm a queer person and so everything has this, like, queer lens. But it's like, oh I see this and I see this. I wonder if it means that because I felt this way or, like, whatever. And it's just I don't think that queer people are necessarily uh, more uh, nuanced and depth people. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you We're are trained. trained to look for things. Like, talking about Xena, we are trained <laughs> to be like, nah, but date together and here's my evidence I was writing I I wrote six issues of a Xena series um, and like I have them kiss in the second issue just full on on the mouth I was like hey I have like an alternate panel but like I would really like to fight for this and my editor was like I'm down but in case they push back and I was like oh I'm ready and I sent them a dissertation I was like and here is every episode where this has happened and blah 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 and I was like no 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 even though they didn't say it on the show they laid that down for us oh yeah and we are trained to see it I, I think it makes us good writers,
3: like not necessarily that every queer person is a good writer, but as queer people and as writers, I think that's something that makes us, one, it makes us want to nourish our readers with the kind of things that nourished us. And it's it's also vague because we're talking in like metaphors about like, you know, creativity and stuff.
4: No, but I, I recently rewatched Utena, the movie. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> and I had not watched it since kind of realizing that I was non-binary. And I was like, oh, no wonder I loved this so much. Mm -hmm. There it is in pink and white. (laughs) There it is, like, right there. And, like, it's the same thing. Like, oh. Stuff makes sense in reverse. Well, yeah.
3: I mean, that same thing, that same story did the same for me because there's that whole thing about how, you know, you're either a princess or a witch. And just as a woman who wasn't, you know, and was like, I don't want to play this game. Like, I, I identified with her, too, you know, just because she was the... Woman. the prince was like yeah and was like and was just like you know gender the 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 gender of the person that needs rescuing is like you guys are stuck in this binary not right. me exactly. like i'm living outside of it and like even as you know someone who does identify as female it's like being a queer person your gender expression is challenged and and made particular and and uh, aggressively mocked um your whole life like Everyone always makes the joke that it's like, oh, the gays know how to dress. It's like, it's armor for us. It's it's subtext. It's like it's it's coding. It's hanky code. It's, yeah, I was going to say, it's
2: also flagging so yeah, we can spot each Yeah, it's hanky other. code. It's, yeah. it's like we, it's
3: our way of saying like, it's like when I was a kid, I remember they used to have people in the neighborhood put like a little sign in their window that was like, this is a safe house, which they don't do anymore because any creep could do it. Yeah. But it's like the, yeah, it's flagging. It's it's the the version of that where we say, even subtly, like... This is this is me. This is what I know how to do, and in my world, this is okay. Um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna write you a world where this isn't okay unless there are consequences because these people are always going to be like like if I I could I could and maybe someday will choose to challenge my own experiences by writing um, a certain kind of queer pain that I've experienced. Uh, don't know that I'm ready to do it yet and don't know that hearing Leah talk about it makes me eager to do it, you
2: know? It's, it sounds really hard. I think you would probably come to the same fork in the road that I did, which is, like, is this the right context for it? And for me, it was. And you probably haven't, like, had that context yet. I just like writing Thanos, man.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
4: well, there are, there are, like I said, there are certain things that, like, you just, if you're not gonna, like, I'm not gonna write it. You know what I mean? If I've given a choice, like I, you know, work for hire, you write within the bounds of whatever you're doing, which is that's what you sign up for. But like we all have done our own stuff. It's like I tell people right up front, listen, if they're brown and queer, they're functionally immortal. I'm going to mess them up in other ways, but I'm not going to kill them. Um, And that shouldn't put you off to the story because you don't actually know what's going to happen. But I'm not going to do it. And just straight up. And no one can force you because it's your stuff.
2: Queer creators have we're expected to warn queer fans and, like, give them a heads up. Like, we're, we're not going to kill off the gays. We're, we're not going to fridge the women. Like, it's it's something that um, I think only queer creators experience. That I,
4: expectation.
2: Yeah. I mean, and, and I'll say there is— For queer characters. Sure. Feast or famine is, yeah. is what I call it. The way that fans, um, queer fans, or, you know— um, the way they rally around the queer characters protectively, it is it is not something that you see in other avenues of the fandom because it is so deeply personal. And I think in X Men particularly, it's like this because the Avengers fandom they don't do this, but um, in in X Men because there is this sort of like underlying theme of marginalization, it it becomes. People project themselves onto these characters more so than in other, you know, Marvel comics fandoms. So there, I have a lot of patience for these people. I really do. As as intense as they can get, it it comes from a place that's sincere. And I was scared
0: as someone who you know didn't know that they were queer until their twenties. Um, I think is important is that the fact that we're in a room. And you're you're not the only three queer creators currently working at Marvel in general, the comic fandom. There is a phenomenon that's happening. I mean, like, why do and a lot of us may may not necessarily have grown up with any uh, uh, male or female or whatever of someone that uh, uh, we could look to to be like, okay, they're out. So that's what I can be. But now this next generation of, of young fans coming up has that opportunity. And not only that, you guys are so open on social media that anyone could come up to you and be like, hey, I'm I, I, I don't know. I don't know who I am. Can I? I mean, we what do is it and they for do the you?
2: younger generation? Yeah. Like it's. We we are genuinely friends and we've kind of like linked arms, you know, like, you know, you're not going to pull us apart. Like we're, we stand together. Um, Red Rover, Red Rover, tiny <laughs> queers come over. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think so much of what drives at least like my willingness to be open about it um, is because I know that young women and young men are, you know, questioning these things themselves and they're watching. Lots of people are are watching us for this kind of stuff. And we do get messages about how it makes them feel validated and human. And you know, we were just talking about feeling monstrous. Now they don't have to. Yeah, I wanna I wanna take that
4: burden. I don't want anyone to know what it felt like to yeah. so grow up the way I grew up. I yeah. mean there was a lot of love in my life. That's not what I'm saying, but those parts I don't. Want the, queer to part, like, the, the queer part, like
2: the queer, the non-binary part, like yeah, yeah I the things you didn't have words for until you know we were
1: older. How do you try to cultivate more acceptance, awareness, support within the community? And I'm saying specific to the comics community because of how much it has evolved in the last ten years, and how much there's still a lot of problems. What are ways in which you
3: guys feel like you can do that? For me, I'm a, I'm kind of a private person in a lot of ways and this is something I've chosen to be public about because it scares me. Because I even sitting here right now, I have anxiety about talking about being a queer person in the world and what that means for me as someone that lives, you know, you know in a semi-public way because I work, you know, for Marvel. So it's it's a sword, you know, that I cho- or a shield rather that I choose to pick up. But at the same time, part of it is sometimes I want to feel like I can put it down. And so for me, that's an important part of the community is like, you know, like we said last night, like not compartmentalizing us, but giving us a treehouse, you know, making not that we need compartments and special handicaps so that we can get up to the level of, you know, the boys or whatever, but more that we are linking arms with those people and that we also can have a special place where our voices and experiences that are unique are nourished and talked about so I think I think a big part of in the community is being an out queer woman and also being a writer and a fan of what I do and I think it's important that we build these yeah like these these spaces are tree houses they're not boxes to put us in
2: I have a very specific answer for this because there was one moment I have these sort of like uh really important moments that totally shift the way I do things moving forward. And one was the Women of Marvel panel at New York Comic-Con last year. And another was when What If Magic got announced. And that absolutely changed the way I move forward with, like, how vocal I am about queer representation online, and it's because of this. So whenever anything gets announced, fans of that character will come to my Twitter and term search for things that I've said about that character. And, like, I don't mind. I've got nothing to hide. It's totally fine. And when they came searching for stuff I've said about, like, Ileana and Magic, they, you know, found some stuff where – I, like, called her a funky little lesbian and that kind of thing. So the 17-year-old girl asked me, like, hey, quick question. Do you think Magic is a lesbian? Yes or no? And I was just like, oh, yeah. I mean, that's how I picture her. I've never really seen her any other way. And to me, it was just something like a fandom thing, like a headcanon and very casual, off the cuff, not really thinking about it. The response that I got was completely disproportionate and just an outpouring of support from teenage lesbians and fans of this character. And it changed my life, like, because before this point, I had been afraid to talk about this kind of stuff online. Like, it's it's unprofessional. What if I make, you know, like, the higher-ups at Marvel mad by speculating about a character's sexuality? But then once I realized, like, you guys have never heard this before. Like, you've never heard that... Of course, it's okay to be a lesbian. Like, yeah, obviously, heroes can be gay. It's fine. Um, I have that conversation very actively online, out of spite, <laughs> um, and I talk a lot about like head and I try to specify, like, I don't mean to queer bait. This is what I think. It's, it's. I'm not writing this book. That kind of thing. Um, but I, I'm a firm believer in conversations and, and kind of the power that discourse has, um, especially when it's in public platforms and visible spaces.
4: Uh, for me, I think I approach this in kind of a more conceptual way. <laughs> um, I, I think building community um, and, and support is about connecting with people strongly, strongly especially on social media where you're not face-to-face and able to have nuanced conversation. Um, and to me, emotion is is a shortcut. And to me, the two strongest emotions that you can really have online are joy and anger. And I think both are appropriate responses to the right stimuli. <laughs> and I, I ch- I hopefully I succeed. But in my mind, I'm choosing mostly to use joy to kind of— build a community, not just around, like, my writing, but just the things that I love. And I feel like, what's the point? (laughs) Otherwise, we are in this as fans and, I think, as creatives because of the community and what is the point of having any sort of cloud or power if you're not going to use it to help people that need the most help? And I'm not just saying that because I'm brown and I'm queer and I'm also like Puerto Rican, like all of these things. I'm saying it because there are people that are very different from me that need a lot more help than I need. What What's the point of doing all of this work if I'm not going to use it for that? And, and that ties into anger because I get angry when I see people being hurtful and negative and tearing people down, I'm not going to engage with them directly because I'm not about that for the most part because that brings more attention to it, but also because I would rather then turn Amplify that anger... what needs the Exactly, volume. yeah. And bring more joy. And And to me, that's
2: what fandom is, like the parts of fandom that kept me in fandom. Anything with an audience has a responsibility to that audience. You have to construct a series of mirrors. The way that you construct it is up to you. But to deny someone their likeness, to to leave them out by omission of a story that they would otherwise be in, you know, to leave out people of color, to leave out queerness, um, it makes them feel monstrous. It, it denies them their reflection in a book that they're going to for joy. So that is why I... Like absolutely believe in representation, and and firmly believe in kind of the power that we have as creators and the responsibility we have to our readers. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I, <laughs> I feel like that was actually
0: like one of the best ways to end this. Uh, not that I don't. I, I would love to talk to all of us and sit in this room forever. Um, uh, we got to like cry and hug each other. Now. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. uh, <laughs> and and, and, and I and I was yeah. sitting here thinking. So this podcast will come out the same week. Five years ago that we started this podcast. Um, and to think that <laughs> five years ago, San and I sit in a room with Janine and Adri that we could be here now, I can't even imagine. I can't
3: believe I'm here like five years ago. <laughs> I know I was you, supposed to do like,
0: pictures of you cosplay on the right, internet. Five years ago, like
3: <laughs> I was like, boy, I hope someone reads something I wrote that isn't a resume or a blog post one day. Like, and uh, and now we're all here. We're here because we deserve it. Yeah. I want to say
4: that. Like, I <laughs> I have zero self-confidence. I really do. But, like, the thing about it is you get a chance f- no matter how you got it, but you kept it because you deserve to be here.
2: Oh, yeah. We're not here because we're queer. We're talking about being queer because we we chose to. But um, it's it's definitely not, like, a tokenist thing. Thank you, guys. Honestly, this was really fantastic. I know it's
1: not easy talking about a lot of this, and but no, it's going to be very impactful and meaningful to a lot of people listening. Thank you for your incredible talent and work. And uh, for your fans and for future fans, people who have probably become fans now listening to this podcast, um, where can they find you if you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, uh, I'm... On Twitter at all times, <laughs> it's actually just
4: directly in my brain. Uh, my social media stuff is at definitely Vita. That's Twitter and Instagram. Uh, my Twitter, I do use blockchain. Uh, so sometimes people get caught in there by accident. It's not personal, but my Instagram is open. so You
3: can find me on social media at Teeny Howard. I'm there on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, it's spelled T-I-N-I and then Howard, like the duck.
2: I'm Handax with an E on everything except Twitter, which is where I hang out the most. And on Twitter, I'm my monster is chic, C-H-I-C, and it's lame, but also I've had the same Twitter since I was 15. Literally the same.
4: You had Twitter when you were a teenager? How old are you? Don't,
2: don't have Twitter. <laughs>
1: I feel ancient. Our our Twitter also is confusing. Every time we we talk about our Twitter, I have two underscores in mine. (laughs) I was not a teenager, though, when I made mine, so that says a lot more about my concept of adulthood. Well, thank you guys once again. This was so fantastic. Thank you for having us. This was cathartic. Deeply cathartic conversation.
0: (laughs) And I'm sure we'll have... All three of you back again. If not on a podcast, a panel. Uh, Make sure you guys keep on tuning in. Go read all their books. Go buy them right now. I'm sure we'll have a a link on marvel.com for where you can uh, pick up their stories. And uh, I think that's it. Thanks again to Teeny, Leah, and Vita for joining us. It was such an emotional and phenomenal experience to be in the room for this conversation. So we hope that you guys all at home enjoyed it as much as we did. Happy Pride for everyone out there. If you're in New York, come out and celebrate. Uh, If not, there's tons of events throughout the the country and the world to celebrate. And uh, we'll see you guys
1: next time. This is Marvel, your universe.